You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. Well, good morning, church. It's Sunday. It's Easter Sunday. You know, Easter weekend is a time when Christians from all around the world come together and they celebrate the death and the resurrection of Christ, of a Savior, where we recognize that God had a plan. God had a plan for a broken world. And it wasn't like a plan B. It wasn't like God sent Jesus down to earth and then last minute decided it wasn't going as we think it should have, so we're going to have to do plan B and put you on a cross. God had a plan from the very foundation of the earth before God put anything into motion. God knew what was going to happen. And that's how we know we can say God is good because God knew what was going to happen and he made a remedy for it when he put everything into motion. And what motivated that was love. You know, the Bible says that God is love. And I think sometimes we don't have a full understanding of really what love is. You know, we have cultural perceptions of love. But the very nature of God is love, and what he does is loving. And sometimes we don't always understand it. We think, well, how God does things sometimes, how is, how is that love? But we have a very limited understanding. We get to see only a sliver of what's going on in and around us in the spiritual world around us. But God has a plan, and God knows all things, and he is faithful, and we know that we can trust in him this morning. You know, but Good Friday, as we celebrate on Friday, many of us um, were at uh, the Community Baptist Church on Friday, and we were celebrating with uh, the Community Baptist Church, and, and uh, it's a wonderful place over there, and it was great to be able to be with Pastor Heather and to be able to worship with them. And as she mentioned many times... Good Friday did not start off as a celebration. You know, the followers of Jesus, this was, this was a horrible day. Everything that they thought Jesus was coming to do was being twisted on its head. And even though Jesus had told them many times about what was to come, they blocked it out. They preferred their ideas of what God was going to do based on, on Scripture, which God is going to do, but God had a different timeline than what the people of Jesus' day thought God's timeline was. You know, in fact, what was about to happen on that Friday, they would not at the moment have considered that good. Today we call it Good Friday because we know what it means. We know what Christ's death on the cross means. But then again, not all of us do. There are many people that don't know what Christ's death on the cross means. And that's why we go and we proclaim and we preach the gospel today, just as people did 2,000 years ago, because we have good news, a message of what God did to redeem and pay for a broken people so that we could be in right relationship with God again. So here are Jesus and his disciples and, and their master, their teacher, their Lord and their friend, the person whom they served and followed for three years is being sentenced 
to death. You know, they were expecting Jesus to rise up an army against the Roman Empire who had conquered and ruled the nation of Israel. But despite the fact that Jesus had told his disciples about what was to come, the crucifixion of Christ was inconceivable to them. Jesus is dragged before Pontius Pilate. He was the prefect of Judea. And as a Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate was granted the power of a supreme judge, which meant that he had sole authority to order a criminal execution. His duties as a prefect also included mundane tasks like tax collection and building construction projects and making sure the Roman Empire and his region operated. He was the local government for the Romans of that, of that region. You know, he really was the authority and the representative of the Roman state. Jesus is bought, brought before Pilate on this day with the demand that he be put to death. You know, Pilate meets with Jesus and he finds no fault in him, but has him flogged and wants to release him. But upon the threat of an uprising, Pilate washes his hands of the blood of Jesus and gives him over to the religious leaders of the temple to be crucified at the hand of Roman soldiers. A Roman crucifixion was the most horrible fate that an individual could undergo at this time in history. You know, if we were to think of the worst thing that could possibly happen to us in our life, it probably wouldn't come close to Roman crucifixion. It was grotesque, it was brutal, and there's not a single record of someone surviving a full Roman execution by crucifixion during this time period. It was an ultimate humiliation that began um, as a way to maintain slaves. The slaves got out of order, they would put them onto crosses and publicly humiliate them by carrying heavy things through the street and, and flogging them. But it was such a horrible thing that Roman citizens were not permitted to be crucified. It was reserved for the worst of criminals, for traitors, for non-Roman citizens who dissented against Rome. It was used to keep the conquered peoples in fear and keep them submissive. Warning, the next few things that I'm going to share about the Roman crucifixion are a little bit graphic. So if you're a little queasy... You might want to plug your ears. But I think it's important that we hear the nature of what Christ had to go through, that we understand the sacrifice that was undertaken, because Jesus was not the final crucifixion. There were thousands of Jews that were crucified after this event. In fact, at the fall of Jerusalem during the rebellion in 70 AD, in, the, in that few-month period, it's recorded that there were 6,000 Jews that were crucified in a similar manner. It's graphic but necessary, I think. You know, a crucifixion would begin with a flogging process. You know, and a flogging by the Romans was not a swift hit on the back with a bamboo rod, like some of us may think of it. But Romans used what was called a flagrum, and a flagrum was a whip composed of six leather straps, and on the end of every leather strap was a knot of leather, and attached to these knots were shards of bone and sharp metal. 
that when the whip would go in and hit a person, that they would dig into the flesh of the perpetrator and literally pull out muscle and flesh from the body. It's recorded that many people that underwent floggings had abdominal walls literally rupture. And as they were carrying their cross, later they'd literally have their intestines hanging out of their bodies. It was so horrendous that people called it the pre-death because many people would die just from the flogging alone. Typically, a Roman officer would be told not to flog to the point of death because the point of this whole process was for it to be a public spectacle. And so the flogging was just one stage of a multi-stage process of a public humiliation and torture that would keep people in line. people's flesh would literally be hanging from their naked bodies as they paraded publicly and made to carry the cross to the final execution site. You know, once their soldiers would then nail a seven-inch nail through the space at the end of your forearm and your wrist, and there it was strong enough to hold up the body on the cross. You know, often um, we see translations say in the hand, and we see pictures or depictions of a nail piercing Jesus' hand. But the hand would not have held the body up. It would have torn very easily and, and the body would have been flopping so it was not effective use. And in many translations, actually this whole region, this whole part of the forearm and the hand was referred to as the hand. You know, a nail was then placed through the feet. And this was given as leverage so that the person could breathe. After being flogged and beaten and carrying their cross, often what would be happening is their lungs and their cavities would be filling with water and with blood, and they would be very weak. And if they did not have something to press up against, then they would die within minutes or at least within a couple hours because literally they would die of asphyxiation. Every step of Roman crucifixion was a prolonged public torture. And when they finally wanted you dead, they'd put a spear through your heart, they'd, or they'd break your legs so that a person in short order would die of asphyxiation. Other historical accounts included crushing skulls with hammers, lighting bodies right on the cross on fire to make sure that the person was dead. If someone was not available at the end to claim a body, they're often left outside the city walls to be consumed by wild dogs. The crucifixion was a guarantee of a painful and agonizing, humiliating death. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He lived a perfect life, serving and loving people. He was arrested, he was beaten, he was tortured, and then nailed to a cross. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to continue the story in John 19.28, where it says this, Later knowing that everything had now been finished, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stick, of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. 
When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, years ago, I remember thinking, wow, how convenient that Jesus is thirsty and there's a jar of wine vinegar there. You know, when I was preparing this message, I, I found multiple commentaries that talked about this jar of wine vinegar and what it was used for. And apparently there was a custom that Roman soldiers, when they were traveling and when they were, they were doing their stuff, they would have jars of, of vinegar and they'd use it to basically sanitize and clean their hands and wash themselves with a sponge after they used the bathroom. And it was a way to keep infection down and to keep the soldiers from getting diseased and sick. There's a good chance that this bottle of wine vinegar was there for that purpose. It was a Roman toilet paper. It was a Roman hand sanitizer. And this is what is lifted up to Jesus' lips in his final moments. Not very pleasant. Not very pleasant at all. With that, it says, it is finished. Jesus said, it is finished, and he bows his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, it says in verse 31. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. And so back in this time, there was what was called the preparation day, because on the Sabbath, it was a day of rest. It was a day set apart for the things of God, to worship God, to reflect and contemplate on God. And so it was a day of no work that was actually punishable by death to work on the Sabbath. And so the preparation day was the day before in which people would prepare everything they needed to prepare for the following day. Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath and asked Pilate to have their legs broken and their bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And as some of you may know, when a, when a body ceases to live and the blood stops pumping, fluids of the body pool. And when he was pierced in the side, that was a sign of death. The, the amounts of fluid that would come flushing out of that wound meant that he had ceased to be living. The man who saw it, it says in verse 35, has given this testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they've pierced. What's interesting about the resurrection of Christ and the death of Christ on the cross is it is not just a biblical event. It's a historical event. There's extra biblical um, knowledge and recordings of this from Romans, from um, Jewish historians. And many, many scholars believe that this is one of the most um, important events and that they actually know that Jesus died on the cross with more certainty than almost any other historical event because there's so much information alluding to what happened here. 
Jesus is then buried. Verse 38, it says, Joseph of Arimathea, or for some reason I'm having trouble saying that word, Arimathea, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. You know, a few months ago, I was sharing a message about Nicodemus and John, John 3, and that conversation that Jesus has with, with Nicodemus about being born again. And something that the Bible says is that Nicodemus came not just on behalf of himself, but on at least one other person. He said that we have come. And it's possible that the Joseph here was one of those people that was working with Nicodemus at that point to learn more about who Jesus was and what he had to say about things. But here it's pretty blatant that Joseph was fearful of the Jewish elite. So therefore, even though in his heart he had decided to follow Jesus, he was doing it secretly. And here he is with Nicodemus, who brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, it says, about 75 pounds. And what's interesting is that Jesus' birth, you know, in the Christmas story, we have the story of the wise men coming from the east and coming with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And around Christmas time, I was, I was sharing about how in these ancient times, gold, frankincense, and myrrh were the three things needed for the death of a king, for the burial of a king. And when they've dug up the Valley of the Kings, they found the sarcophaguses and they found the burial sites of the ancient kings of Egypt and of this region, that their bodies are covered in a paste of frankincense and myrrh and then wrapped in linens. And then their bodies were then covered with a gold sarcophagus. And so even as a baby, when these men came with gifts, they were bringing burial spices meant for a king at the birth of Jesus. Here he is, Jesus' death has now come. And Nicodemus comes with this mixture of myrrh and aloes, it's a 75 pounds. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance to Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. An unused tomb was of immense value. Somebody to have an unused tomb carved out of stone meant that they were a wealthy individual. Somebody who had taken time and, and, and money to invest in a formal grave such as the one that Jesus was laid in. Jesus died. He was buried. His tomb was sealed. But this was not the end of the story. If you could play the little video now. Thanks, Kurt.
three days later, he is risen. His body is no longer in the tomb, no longer in the grave, not facing decay, but he is alive, affirming his identity as the Son of God, as God, the God-man who came to redeem and restore a broken world and to save a people like you and me from death. You know, Acts 1.3, it says that he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. You know, the Bible has many eyewitness testimonies of Jesus coming and being before people and discussing and eating with people, including large groups of up to 500 individuals seeing him at the same time. It's a pretty amazing thing. If somebody that you had traveled with, walked with, spent time with, every day for three years died, came back from the dead, do you think you'd be able to recognize them? Do you think if they picked up a stranger and dressed him up like Jesus and tried to hire an impersonator to come that they'd be able to tell the difference? You bet. You bet they would. Jesus was now alive again. And here he was, meeting with people and teaching about the things of the kingdom of God. You know, in verse 4, it says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. You know, it's interesting. He ate with them, which means he had a physical body. You know, he wasn't a ghost. He had a physical body in which he ate. It wasn't like Casper the Friendly Ghost where he ate and the food just fell on the floor. He was a man with a body who was raised from the dead. So on this occasion, while they were eating, he gave them this command. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you are going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom of Israel? Once again, they have their mind set on what Jesus is going to do and when he's going to do it. And Jesus' response is, he says, it is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before the very eyes, and a cloud hid from them, hid him from their sight. You know, shortly afterwards, a hundred followers of Jesus are gathered together in Jerusalem, praying and waiting for this thing that he promised, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Bible records in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit comes like a whirlwind, like a mighty gushing wind, Describes it like tongues of fire resting over people's heads. They speak in known languages and unknown languages, which the Bible talks about and calls speaking in tongues. And Peter begins to preach to a crowd of people who hear the commotion explaining what is happening and how the scriptures actually spoke about the very things that they are witnessing. Acts 2.22 
Peter preaches. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. What an amazing thing that these people got to witness Jesus doing miracles. And he's pretty certain here. He's not like, this guy did some miracles that maybe some of you heard some rumors of. He's looking at people who have witnessed Jesus healing the blind, healing the leper, healing the deaf, casting out demons. These are people that saw Jesus do mighty wonders, signs, and miracles. And Peter says, you yourselves know because you've seen him do it. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. I don't know if you caught that, but his being handed over and put on the cross was not a fluke, was not random chance. It was God's deliberate plan that he foreknew was going to happen. But, it says in verse 24, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The grave couldn't keep him down. In verse 25, it says, David said this about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. This is hope. Hope for the resurrected Savior. Hope that when we trust in Jesus, when we walk in relationship with God, that we can walk unshaken, that we too can have a heart that's made glad, and that we can rejoice with our mouth and with our tongue, knowing that even one day when this physical body does die, that death is not the end, but that God has made known to us the paths of life, and we will spend eternity in his presence with Jesus, with God. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day, Peter says. But he was a prophet and he knew God had promised him an oath, on oath, that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what has come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. He continues in Acts 2.36. Peter continues to preach, saying, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified 
both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. Today, the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus is for you in this room, is for those who are near and those who are far. Some of the people in your mind that you may think are the farthest away from God. The message of the gospel is hope for them. Hope for them that they too can know Jesus Christ. As, as Mark preached last week, Jesus came to bring eternal life. Eternal life being that we would know the Father and the Son whom he sent. That that is what eternal life is. That we would live in relationship with God for eternity. That we would know him. That we would, as David said, spend forever in his presence. What an amazing gift that God has offered to you and offered to me. The message is still the same today. It's just as relevant today as it ever was. And the message is repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to put your trust in him for the forgiveness of our sin. It's simple. That all have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. That not one of us measures up to the perfection which God requires of us. And so he made a remedy by sending his son, Jesus the Christ, one of the three people of the Godhead that are otherwise called the Trinity. This God who is three in one sent the son to earth to live a perfect life as a man, leaving glory behind and coming in humility to walk amongst us, to live with us, to show us God's ways, to die and to be raised again in glory so that we too could be partakers and share in the glory of God and be sons and daughters of God. What an amazing privilege that we have as a promise for you and a promise for your children and for all whom are near and far. Again, Peter continues to preach, saying with many other words, he has warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Save yourselves from a corrupt generation. You know, I don't know if there's been a generation since then that hasn't been corrupt. We still live in a fallen world. And today we also live in a corrupt generation that has strayed far from God's plan and God's intention. But Jesus is here to save us from this generation. And it says in verse 41 that those who accepted his message were baptized. You know, in a few weeks, on June 9th, we're going to be holding a, a baptism service. And a baptism service is an amazing thing. I love baptism services. 
because it's a time where we get together and we celebrate that which Christ has done in somebody's life. And it was, in many ways, an outward expression of what God has already done inside an individual. That somebody has made a decision to receive Christ, to believe in him and trust him with their life, and to follow in his ways, putting aside their selfish ambition, saying, God, I want only what you want for my life, and I'm going to follow you to my last breath. And then we get to see this beautiful thing, which is a beautiful symbolism of every single one of us who chooses to follow Jesus and be baptized is dying to ourselves as though we are partaking in the death of Christ. And we are cleansed and made pure and right with God as we come out. We now can walk in the resurrection life of Christ. We are made new. We are a new creation. And we have the Spirit of God living within us as a picture of the resurrection life that we've been given to be able to go and to do things just as Jesus did, to go heal the sick, to pray for people that are sick, to see signs and wonders in our day, in this crooked generation, and to see a restoration happen within our sphere of influence of the kingdom coming into our life and invading the world around us by his Holy Spirit. I just want to invite you, if you are here and you've recently made a decision for Christ, be baptized. Why wouldn't you? If you're here and you've been following Jesus for 30 years and you've never been baptized, why wouldn't you? Now's the time. We want to celebrate with you. And if you're here and, and God is just pricking your heart and you're like, I just came here for a nice little sermon. I wasn't, wasn't coming here for a conversion experience. If God is speaking to your heart this morning, what's stopping you? I'm saying, yes, God, I want you. I acknowledge what you did for me. And God, I want you in my life. And God, I, I forgive me of all my sin. I'm going to trust in you. And what happens is God then clothes you with robes of righteousness. And you can then enter into God's presence. And he showers his love and his grace and his mercy onto you. And you can know God. You know, before I had met Christ, I really did not understand much of anything when it came to spiritual things, you know, and for the most part, I put my trust in the natural world, the things that I could see, touch, hear, and taste. You know, this concept of knowing God or having a relationship with God seemed borderline delusional to me. That was until I encountered the presence of God, the tangible presence of God. I was listening to a testimony recently of a Jewish woman from New York who, you know, she was a Jewish lady who knew nothing really about Jesus. And her rabbi growing up told her, you know what, you should, you know, not look too much into that because it's just going to take you off track. And one day she was at a bookstore and she came across a book and it was called Rabbi Jesus. She thought, oh, that's interesting. And she picked it up and she went to go read it on, on a plane. And the lady sitting behind her said, oh, what are you reading? And she said, oh, well, I'm just reading this book. I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm not a Christian, but I just thought it looked interesting. And then the lady started explaining that she was a Christian author and she'd written many books and started to share the gospel with her. Anyhow, she agreed to send her some books of her own when she got home, and so she exchanged information. And um, when she got home, one day she received a book in the mail from this woman a few weeks later. 
And uh, she's looking at this book, and then her sister gives her a phone call. And she's explaining, oh, I met this lady on this plane, and she sent me this book. And she's like, oh, what's the lady's name? And she says the lady's name, and, the, and her sister like, goes dead silent. And she's like, what, what's going on? And she's like, I'm holding a magazine right now of a review article written about that woman's book. And she's like, what? What? And so anyhow, a couple weeks later, they go to, to church. And she has this experience where she's sitting in a service like ours, and she hears music, and she starts participating in, and reading the words, and it just starts to energize her. And then later on in the service, she just felt this energy coming through her body when a lady came to pray for her. And she was overcome by this sense of love, this electric love hug, she called it. And when she was telling this story, I was like, you know what, that is so similar to what I experienced, that I came to a church in Calgary, and at the time I wasn't even seeking God. I was dragged there against my will, as some of you may be here this morning. But the Holy Spirit met with me, and it was like a huge Holy Spirit hug. It was like God had hugged me, and I felt love like I'd never encountered before in my life. I didn't know what to do with it. I was kind of overwhelmed with it. And I was having literally, like, my heart was racing. I had this burning in my gut. I didn't know what I was experiencing. And I went home, and I went on to Ask Jeeves. I don't know if any of you know, remember Ask Jeeves, but I went on to Ask Jeeves, and I typed in symptoms of a heart attack, stroke. I thought I was actually having physical, like, something was medically wrong with me. And I went to bed that night, and, and realizing that none of my symptoms seemed to fit. There was one that was like if you like put a fork into a light socket or something, that was probably the closest thing I'd experienced, and that never happened, so I could rule that one out. But when God's love enters into your life, everything changes. The darkness in your life all of a sudden becomes brighter. All of a sudden you can see a little farther than maybe you saw before. All of a sudden those, those things that just overwhelmed you aren't as overwhelming anymore because all of a sudden you know that there's somebody there with you and you're not alone. You know, that's the amazing thing is that Christ is alive and he's here in this room and he's here with us right now. And when he's with you, there's nothing that you cannot do. All things, the Bible says, is possible for those who believe and put their trust in him. If any of you in this room are struggling with this idea that you can have a relationship with a God that you believe you can't see, you can't touch, you can't hear, or maybe you're not even sure if you can taste. I want to tell you this morning that you definitely can. I can tell you from my personal experience that I have, and many in this room have as well. You know, you can know the risen Christ, and the Holy Spirit is here today and wants to reveal the truth of the life saving message of Jesus that is just as potent, just as relevant, just as necessary today as it was almost 2,000 years ago when Peter preached this message, when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Christ died so that you may live. You know, John 3, 16, one of the most famous verses. Football players plastered on their face back when they could. You know, Tebow wrote John 3.16 on his cheeks before one of their championship games. And within an hour, 100 million people had looked up, what is John 3.16? 
And his response was, how are there 100 million people in the United States that don't know John 3.16? That was what he was thinking. But if there's 100 million people in the United States watching football that do not know John 3.16, I'm betting there's some of you in this room that might not know John 3.16. As a verse that says this, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Did you hear that? Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. He came to show you a better way, a way that leads to life. But, in verse 18, it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were, their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds would be exposed. It's uncomfortable to be exposed when you've done wrong, isn't it? I don't know if any of you have been caught doing wrong, caught with your pants down, so to speak. That's not a great illustration, but I've already said it. But I think you all know what I mean. I'm not going to go into more explicit detail. You know what I, you know what I mean? can be uncomfortable when the light is shined on, on a dark situation. You know, as our Prime Minister has said time and time again, light is the best disinfectant. Even he's afraid of light these days. Um, but in saying that, it's true that the light came into the world. Jesus was the light of the world. Some people see the light and it comforts them because they're willing to receive that which God brought through his son, the gift of eternal life by faith in him alone. But some are content to stay and walk in the darkness because that's what seems normal and comfortable to them. And the fear of light exposing the truth of what's in their heart frightens them to the core because they don't even know what's going to be found in the depths of their own heart because they know there's some darkness down there that they've been stuffing and stuffing and stuffing, and that they're afraid if I were to just let just even a little bit out, I may not be able to stop it. I'll tell you this, that whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly, and what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And the Bible says that when we come, when we confess our sins and sacrifice it to God, that he comes like a fire into our life and burns that stuff up and purifies us and makes us pure and holy in his sight. Something amazing happens when we confess our sin to God and even to one another. Is that that stronghold, that thing that, that has us, that has this hold on us, no longer has a grip on us. It's been has been released. And by the power of Christ in our life, 
God wants to take it all. He doesn't want to just take a bit and a piece here and there. He wants all of that darkness that's inside of you to be eradicated so that you would be filled with his light, filled with his love, filled with truth, filled with his peace and his joy and the fullness of everything that God has for you. You know, this morning, to close, I want to say this morning, receive the gift, the free gift that God has offered you if you haven't this mor- already this morning. Be saved from this corrupt and crooked generation. Put your trust in Christ and follow him. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and allow God to transform you into a new person from the inside out. If God is speaking to your heart this morning, I would love to meet with you. If you'd come and, and come up and our prayer team will be up here to meet with you and to pray with you. And to, If you just have even some questions about what it means to follow Jesus, who is this Jesus, come up. We'd love to share that with you. But also, if you're here and you are experiencing a staleness in your relationship with God, or maybe you've never had an amazing second encounter with the Holy Spirit and when she comes into your life with power and authority, come on up. We'd love to pray with you that the Holy Spirit would fill you today and that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That you could, too, have a deep abiding relationship with Jesus that transforms everything in your life, the way you think, the way you feel, the way in which you view everything the paradigm shift that Mark shared about last week. So I'm going to close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you this morning that you sent your son to die for us. God, I thank you. Jesus, Lord, I thank you that you came and that you were willing to die so that we could be restored and walk in right relationship with our Heavenly Father, that we would be one with you just as you are with God. God, I thank you, Lord, for the hope that you brought to a broken world. And God, how you want to restore it, beginning with us, beginning with our heart and our soul. And so, God, I just pray, Lord, today, God, if there's any resistance in this room to receiving the truth and to putting their trust in you, God, I pray, Lord, that you would conquer that right now. Lord, that fear would not win, but Lord, we would leave this room today with power, love, and a sound mind. And God, a resolve to serve and to follow you and to lay aside all that that hinders us from living the life that you've called us to live. God, I pray for those that need a fresh feeling of the Holy Spirit today. God, that are feeling dry. God, I pray, Lord, that they would know What streams of living water taste like again? Holy Spirit, that you would come in a tangible way and you would replenish their souls this morning. God, I thank you for what you did on the cross. And Lord, this morning we celebrate Resurrection Day, the day that you rose from the dead so that we could too walk in resurrection life. And God, I thank you and I praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Cold Lake Community Church Podcast. 
We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.